just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello everybody, good evening and welcome. Um, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm very, very pleased this evening to have as my guest Frank de Curta, who, as I'm sure all of you will know, is the author of an extraordinary, stupendously good and stupendously depressing trilogy of books about Chairman Mao's uh, reorganisation of the Chinese agricultural sector. Um, we're not here to talk about those books, or not directly, his new book is called, um, it's a very helpful do-it-yourself manual called How to Be a Dictator, <laughs> the Cult of Personality in the 20th Century. Um, and I'd like to ask, start by asking, Frank, what, why this book? Why did you decide to do this, to take a bigger view, and why now? Uh, well, I'll tell you in a moment. But before I start, I just want to clarify an important point. Um, it might seem to some of you that, the colour of my shirt and my shoes uh, is coordinated with the colour of the jacket. <laughs> so you might think this, this is a very sad little man who goes out and buys a shirt with the same colour. But I had the shirt well before the jacket ever came out. <laughs> I want to make sure that we're clear on that. So the last book in the trilogy was on the Cultural Revolution. Chairman Mao launches this in 1966 pretty much to purged the ranks of, of anyone who ever expressed any criticism of, of what he did, in particular the tens of millions of people who were uh, beaten, starved to death during the Great Leap Forward. Um, now, the Cultural Revolution was an attack also on culture. Mao detested anything that smacked of so-called feudal, superstitious, bourgeois culture, and in its stead appeared uh, what by all accounts, is a cult of personality. And then one day, I gave a talk on this, and a man who spent decades researching the Cultural Revolution asked me, but what about ideology? And that, that really left me rather puzzled, bemused. So what about it? And it occurred to me that, you know, since I went to university, We've been told that ideology matters a great deal in these regimes. And it appeared to me that what is so essential during the Cultural Revolution, but in fact for, for, for many decades before, is a Chinese character called Zhong, uh, the very heart of the Cultural Revolution. It means loyalty. You must prove your loyalty to the chairman by denouncing friends, family, neighbors by learning the little red book by heart. It's loyalty to a person, not loyalty to a creed that matters for Chairman Mao. So I thought I should check that for other dictators. And it's very much the same principle. Uh, in other words, Marxism, Leninism, all nice and well, but ultimately nobody reads Marx under Stalin. Under Stalin, people are Stalinists. Under Mao, the Maoists. Under Kim Il-sung, the Kim Il-sungists. Kim Il-sung goes so far as to Eliminate Mao Zedong thought from the constitution in 1972. Replaces it with Kim Il-sung thought. That, that was the point of departure. And when you departed, you know, with this 
wonderful menu you had available to you, a sort of a la carte of 20th century dictators. Why did you choose the ones you did? There's a sort of almost a kind of daisy chain structure to the book that it's, leads from one to another. But. Yeah, so it's an embarrassment of riches. There's so many of them. Nasty people. All of them men, by the way. Uh, I did ask a number of uh, colleagues who suggested that I should include a woman to come up with a name. And all they could do is invoke the name of Eva Perón, quite frankly. Uh, not even rank 123 when it comes to nastiness. <laughs> she had a musical. <laughs> I had to start with Mussolini simply because he, he is one of the very first. You could say Lenin, but Lenin appears in the, the Stalin chapter. Mussolini is the one who organizes the march on Rome. He's the one who starts his whole cult of personality thing. He's, he's, he's your, your first dictator. He inspires another man in Germany uh, who goes by the name of Adolf Hitler, of course. And then Stalin is also one of those you, you can't possibly miss with Mao and Kim Il-sung. The, the five big ones seem to me to be quite essential. Then the question was, who do you add on to that? I thought you needed a few minor figures. Nikolai Ceausescu, because he's utterly mad and possibly the only one who ends up truly believing that he's a genius, uh, veers off takes off in the world of his own, is incapable of reading the signs, misinterprets everything, and ends up being shot by the people who were acclaiming him a few days earlier on. Papa Doc Duvalier, uh, chronologically before Ceausescu, um, because he's, as I say in the book, a dictator's dictator. He's, he's got a gun on his desk, uh, a couple of guards uh, behind the door, and he rules everything from his palace. He spends his entire time keeping tabs on people and purging, executing friends and foes alike, which is always a very important principle. Eliminate your friends first, then tackle your enemies. <laughs> the last one is Mengistu, um, because there's an interesting echo, of course, with Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini uh, wishes to turn Ethiopia into a, a colony, but also because you needed, I think, someone from, from Africa. Uh, and again, because Mengistu throws so much light on the other dictators, it goes back to that issue of ideology. Uh, there is no real party under Mengistu. He is a Marxist, of course. There's a statue of Karl Marx, one by Lenin. Uh, the red pennants, flags are all there, the red stars. Um, but ultimately, mm, he's not a true believer. It's just a veneer. And it seems to me, again, that by looking at Mengistu, that throws light on all the other communist dictators as well, including Stalin. Yeah, I mean, you do raise somewhere in the book, because I, I, I said probably about half your selected cast are communists, at least ostensibly. Yes. You say somewhere in the book, it's a bit odd that... Communism, which is about the dictatorship of the proletariat, should throw up so many people who are essentially emperors. Yes. Why is that, and how do they get round it? Yes, it's it's a contradiction. Uh, it starts with Stalin. Uh, it's supposed Soviet Union is supposed to be a dictatorship of the proletariat in the parlance of Marxism Leninism. Uh, it turns out dictatorship of one person. How does Stalin? Why he does it is a separate matter, I'll come to that in a minute. How he gets around it 
is of course by inviting a string of foreign writers who visit him in his office in the Kremlin and are taken aback by how kind, humble and modest this man is. It, it really is the masses who adore him and who demand to see him, who want him on Red Square, on the rostrum, on May Day and on the celebration of the October Revolution. I want him standing there. It's the people who adore him. Of course, it's the other way around. Now, why does Stalin do it? Why do communist dictators do it? Uh, a number of reasons. Uh, one is that for all dictators, um, they are really working with a paradox. A modern dictator uh, operates in a modern age of democracy, where sovereignty is supposed to be vested in the people who elect their own leader. So how do dictators get around that? Uh, by creating the illusion of consent. Of course, the terror is very important. These dictators have seized power. Lenin seized it. Stalin inherits it. And any power seized through violence must be maintained by violence. But violence is a very, very blunt instrument. So if a dictator, like Stalin and others, can actually coerce their own people to acclaim him in public and create the illusion of popular consent, they will last a lot longer. But there's a second reason, which has nothing to do with ordinary people. And you can always send the secret police to, to interrogate them and execute them, uh, or club them to death. But the other problem is really the inner circle. If a dictator can seize power, uh, anyone else can do the same thing. It raises the prospect of a stab in the back. There could be a rival who is just as ambitious. So how do you prevent that? Um, well, again, cult of personality comes in very handy. If you compel uh, rivals and allies alike to acclaim you in public repeatedly, uh, it becomes very difficult for them to organize a coup. If you turn them into liars, nobody knows any longer who believes what. So it's very difficult for a traitor to find allies and organize a conspiracy. I think that's what it really is about. In the case of the Marxist dictators, there's yet an added element, namely that Lenin, Stalin, and all the others, all the way down to Mengistu, are all too well aware of the fact that the philosophy of dialectical materialism and the writings of Karl Marx aren't exactly all that riveting for a population that remains largely illiterate in the case of Russia, China, North Korea, Ethiopia. So appeals to the leader, some sort of holy figure, works much better. When Lenin dies, 1924, Stalin is very clear about, um, about the 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 religious um, aspects of embalming Lenin, displaying him inside a mausoleum, and having ordinary people adore him like a saint. They're very well aware of that, and they do it because it works. Did they did they learn from each other, these dictators? I mean, this sort of formula 
of the cult of personality that you describe. You say Mussolini kind of started it, but are the dictators of the 20th century sort of disconnected because of you know, unique circumstances of mass democracy, ostensible mass democracy, of mass media, yep. from, if you like, the absolute monarchies of the past? I mean, is there, are there lessons to be learned? Are there parallels with, say, Louis XIV or Elizabeth I or any of the sort of absolutist monarchies? Yeah, I yeah, understand the question. The, the two aspects to it, one is um, do they learn from each other? Secondly, do they learn from the past? Do they invoke the past? So do they learn from each other? The answer is um, absolutely yes. Ultimately, what they do, the, the book ultimately is about power. What do you do with it? How do you seize it? How do you keep it? How do you organise it? Um, in that sense, I'm exactly like a dictator, in that dictators study power. And it doesn't really matter uh, what they read. They might very well, in the case of good old chairman Mao, read the classics of the art of war. But, of course, Mao's also absolutely fascinated by Stalin and, and, and sees the course that Stalin designed as a sort of uh, path to power. So they all study each other, and they all want answers to the same question. How do you take it? How do you keep it? How do you eliminate your rivals? How do you age as a dictator without that stab in the back? So they're constantly scrutinizing each other. Mussolini is a fan of Lenin. Adolf Hitler is a fan of Lenin. They both understand from Lenin that you can seize power by having a revolutionary vanguard that will then organize the revolution from above. So, you know, to some extent, you might say the distinction between left and right um, obviously is valid, uh, but there is a, a lot of cooperation between these two, a lot of inspiration, if you wish. Stalin goes out of his way, of course, uh, to speak rarely, to use the weight of silence to impress those around him. In contradistinction, of course, to the ravings of Adolf Hitler or the very, you know, um, lively style of Mussolini, uh, he will smoke a pipe. He's your Uncle Joe. He's the one who listens. The fascists are the ones who do all the talking. So it's all done uh, in, 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 in context. They study each other. Now, the relationship to the past, you could summarize it by asking yourself, is uh, Mao a Marxist-Leninist dictator or a red emperor? Is he just a new emperor? I think, again, one must be aware of the fact that these dictators very deliberately cultivate links with the past because it has a greater popular appeal. So, quite deliberately, Mussolini will invoke the feelings of Christian worship and piety with holy sites with pilgrimages, possibly even the hope of a holy touch from Mussolini in Rome. Um, he does it deliberately, in the same sense that Stalin deliberately uses the iconography of the empire and the Orthodox Church to portray uh, first Lenin, but then himself as some sort of holy figure. Mengistu in Ethiopia uh, eliminates Haile Selassie. First thing he does is occupy the Grand Palace. 
has the emperor throttled to death, buries the man underneath his office, puts his desk right above it, somehow to possibly absorb that charisma from the emperor. So there's always a link with the past, always. But the techniques are absolutely modern. These are no absolute monarchs. An absolute monarch, and Henry VIII, and Louis XIV, couldn't care less about what ordinary people think. Couldn't care less. Well, to that extent, do the sort of mass democracy of the 20th century enable their dictators? I well, mean, absolutely. They're in contradistinction. So th this, this is, again, what I say, they call this the paradox of the dictator. He must appear to be democratic. You travel the world, go to North Korea, go to Beijing, and ask these people, are you Democrats? They'll say, yeah, of course we are. In the case of Marxist-Leninist regimes, it's called democratic centralism. Not that wishy-washy parliamentary stuff, you know, not that capitalist pretense at democracy, but true democratic centralism. All of them pretend to be Democrats. But sometimes, I mean, I think Duvalier was, the, was one of the great examples you quote. He says referendum, I think it's the one that's the referendum to make him dictator for life. Yes. And he registers something like two and a half million votes in favour. Yes. And a solitary vote against. Yes. Now, is he just taking the piss with that? Is that, is that a way of saying, here is a statistic so implausible, <laughs> I can get away with producing it? I mean, you'd think he'd have gone three or you know, yes. so, something more likely. Yes. Why, why was that? Is, that? is that a dictator's sense of humour? It's a democracy. People are allowed to vote against him. Proof. One man did. He got shot, I imagine. <laughs> Same thing with Adolf Hitler. Loses every election. The Nazis never managed to obtain an absolute majority, even after Hitler is appointed as Chancellor by Paul Hindenburg in January 1933. There is an election several months later. As the brown shirts go around beating up everybody, still they fail to obtain a majority. And then an enabling act is passed. A year later, 1934, uh, Hitler merges the office of President of the Reich, Chancellor of Germany, and wants a plebiscite. And again, the brown shirts go around knocking on people's doors, distributing posters of Adolf Hitler, and they will come back making sure that that poster has been properly displayed and that you vote in the proper way. He gets 90%. In other words, after a year of terror, one out of 10 Germans has the guts to vote against Adolf Hitler. No, dictators love plebiscites and referendums. Again, it goes back to the, the illusion of popular support. Yeah. Does it make a difference that institutions that they start out with, that they're working with. I mean, you know, Hitler came to power in, as you say, something that looked, though it was quite shakily and newly constituted, a mature democracy. You know, Stalin inherited, sort of inherited to some extent a dictatorship. Mm. Obviously, Kim in Korea, yep. you know, inherits a dictatorship Clearly. now. I mean, does, it, does the way the whole setup work change? There are those who inherit the dictatorship. Stalin gets it from Lenin. Uh, Kim II, Kim III get it from Kim I, Kim Il-sung. So there's the inheritance thing. But ultimately, 
um, it's easier to establish a dictatorship in a country that has uh, a poor or recent history of separating out powers. I mean, the notion that sovereignty resides in the people, uh, which comes from the French Revolution, and the idea from Montesquieu that you should separate out powers and have checks and balances is an extraordinary achievement. You know, that, that, that a government uh, might actually agree that it should abide by a court order is quite an extraordinary achievement in the history of humanity, so to speak. Well, in Zimbabwe, weren't the last holdout against Bob Mugabe was pretty much the judicial system, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, there's a sort of... Yes, so you can maintain the illusion of it, but the, the real separation of powers with, with an independent judicial system is, is quite a difficult thing to achieve. So the 20th century, as I see it, is two very opposite trends. One is to try to separate out those powers and have checks and balances, and the other one is to concentrate all powers in the hands of one party and ultimately one person. Um, now it's easier to concentrate that power in countries that don't have a long history of attempting to build up a civil society and independent judicial system. That's crystal clear. So it won't happen here. Don't worry. <laughs> Boris yes. Johnson will not no, we'll seize power through a coup. No, there is some... I mean, the, all dictators seem to... It's part of the cult of personality thing. They all have merch, don't they? I mean, the sort of merchandise, the, the gear... That yes. comes. There are some fantastic statistics here about, you know, actually an entire sub-economy yes. in Chairman Mao badges, for yes. instance, turning up in China and, you know, aluminium shortages because they're all being melted down to make Chairman Mao badges. Yes. And this was a good example of capitalism in action locally, yes. wasn't it? Well, it, the, the irony in the case of the Cultural Revolution is that some 50 million badges are produced each month, which is not enough. So... There's a black market. <laughs> Workers start stripping industrial equipment to find the bronze to make these badges on the black market. You have red guards who travel the country. They don't have money. They use the badges as a form of exchange. So the badges become a means of exchange in a very capitalist way. Yeah, there's the state-controlled market, and there's a black market so at the very hearts of the Cultural Revolution, which is supposed to be so anti-capitalist. The very badge of the chairman becomes almost an emblem of individual enterprise. That's extraordinary. Now, do you think that there's something psychologically that these characters have in common? Or does the role sort of force them into this thing? I mean... Screamingly bad taste seems to be one thing. <laughs> Certainly in the case of Ceausescu, an overweening vanity as well. So didn't Peter York get a whole book out of dictators' homes? Yes, was just a series you could. Of kind of photographs of the interiors. Of yes, the... my wife and I were lucky enough to be in uh, Romania when um, the, the, the house of Ceausescu was opened up to the public. It's quite extraordinary. The man lived rather well when the population was starving. Um, well, I think the point is that it, it is tempting, but I think dangerous to come up with a list of features, you know, the, the 12 key psychological features of dictators. It might well be that every single one of them was, was spanked by 
his papa when they were young. But, you know, it happened to many of us. It might well <laughs> be that some of them have some, a lesion on the frontal lobe. Yeah, well, it happens to other people who did not become dictators. Um, nonetheless, there are common features, and I think that if anyone here is contemplating uh, reading the book in order to become a dictator, uh, I think that one quality, one psychological quality that really helps is lack of empathy. Lack of empathy. So ruthless is important, lack of empathy. Uh, ruthless because it is not enough to eliminate your enemies. Because after a while you no longer know who is an enemy and who isn't. So you must purge right, left and centre and get rid of your friends most of all. Yes, wasn't ruthless. Was it Stalin who had the notion that the best way to control a population my fear is to punish people at random rather than... Oh, every dictator will do that. Yeah. Every dictator. But the second point is lack of empathy. The, the point is that a dictator, as a result of this cult of personality, ends up being surrounded by liars, flatterers, sycophants. Nobody will tell you the truth. And they become even more paranoid uh, with the result that they take major decisions on their own. Should I invade the Soviet Union or not? Should I sign a pact with Nazi Germany or not? Should I have a great leap forward or not? Tens of millions of people lose their lives in the case of uh, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, the Second World War, and of course in the case of the Great Leap Forward, 58 to 62 in China. So if you're going to lose sleep over that, that's not a good job. If you can just see it as a sort of statistic, it will help a great deal. They do seem to have in common to an extent that they do, as you say, take these huge decisions by themselves. And I mean, in your very first chapter, the second half of the chapter about Mussolini is kind of, in its own very dark way, it's hilariously funny because everything Mussolini does is a complete cock-up. It's a complete cock-up. Um, <laughs> is dictatorship in some encouraging way sort of self-limiting from that point of view? Because if you end up micromanaging absolutely everything in a way that no one person can, is the collapse always inevitable? A great many of them are micromanagers. Mussolini, besides running half a dozen ministries, has time to change the colour of a woman's magazine in the 1930s. He dictates everything. Same thing with Adolf Hitler. Intervenes a great deal in every military decision. Stalin is a compulsive editor going in great detail over speeches, newspaper articles, will prune his own cult of personality, cutting back here and there certain expressions he doesn't like in order to allow them to reappear in good season, so to speak. Mao, probably less so. But Duvalier will prescribe how Creole should be spelt. Uh, um, you know, which students are allowed to graduate. Um, you know, what sort of stone should be used for a new road to the airport. These are micromanagers in many cases. But of course, um, it, it, it is comical in many cases. Um, but of course, 
it also costs, uh, it creates a lot of human misery. What I mean is, is it great amount of human misery? Is it self-limiting to the extent that the seeds of the dictator's downfall are kind of sown in the way that they have to be in order to continue being dictators? I mean, that it, it's not self-limiting in that sense. I mean, can um, you have a sustainable dictatorship, I suppose, it, in ecological terms? You can kill, this is one thing that dictators demonstrate very clearly, you can kill literally tens of millions and live a long life and die in your own bed. This happened with Stalin, happened with Mao, uh, did not happen with Ceausescu, did not happen with Adolf Hitler, but you can get away with mass murder and die in your old age. Um, it, it is not so much self-limiting, but there's a, a threat that can come from ordinary people who will rise against you in the, cause, in the case of Ceausescu. Ceausescu. There was that electrifying video. Uh, electrifying, where Ceausescu addresses people who he is used to seeing. These are party activists who applaud him, have been applauding him for the last 20 years. Addresses them from the party headquarters in Bucharest on the 21st of December 1989. All of a sudden he realizes people are not applauding him at all. They're booing him. They're jeering him. He looks very shocked. He starts making concessions. His voice falters. His wife intervenes, taps on the microphone, says, what is wrong with you? Quiet. But people know that the moment his voice falters and he starts making concessions, they know that this man uh, is out. That, that spell is broken. The fear is gone. This is televised. The screen goes blank. Everybody in Romania knows that a revolution is on the way. A few days later, uh, Ceausescu and his wife uh, are taken to a toilet block and shot. So there's a threat that can come from the people. There's a threat that can come from the inner court, so to speak. But occasionally, the, a big threat can come from the dictators themselves be, because they make huge decisions uh, that can actually lead to their end. I think, again, Adolf Hitler is a good example. Yeah. How fragile is dictatorship? I mean, it's very striking that a lot of the things that they crack down on, and there's that very telling thing when Stalin has Osip Mandelstam done for, for I think he's sent to the Gulag or he's exiled, for privately reading a poem which contains a joke about Stalin at Stalin's expense. Yes. I mean, they're, they're sort of, they're often, particularly in Eastern Europe, they're particularly worked up about poets. Yes. You know, we're not really scared of poets here, um, except when they're drunk at parties, but, you know, in, in the Eastern European dictatorships, it was poets they were scared of. What are the, why are those things the things that they find Dictators frightening? Dictators don't like being mocked. And I remember reading this particular poem uh, as an undergraduate student. I, I did Russian as an undergraduate student, where Osip Mandelstam, wonderful poet, talks about the dictator. And I remember that he mentioned his big, fat fingers like white worms. That caused his downfall. He died in a camp. His wife, Nadezhda Mandelstam, went to work in a factory outside of Moscow. 
and noticed that despite all that terror and that cult of personality, we're talking about 1938, 1939, ordinary workers referred to Stalin as the pockmarked fellow. Did many of these dictators have senses of humour themselves? They were obviously vulnerable to being laughed at. None, absolutely none. Um, Kim Il-sung might have been charming enough. If you had to meet any one of these eight chaps, I would recommend Kim, Kim Il-sung. He, 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 he could hold a decent conversation. He could, he could crack a joke. He could put you at your ease. The least, least of all, Ceausescu. Um, so, in, I believe, 1972, it's not enough for Ceausescu to be leader of the party, head of the state. He wishes to be president of the country as well. And he's giving a a scepter, and Salvador Dali sends a telegram saying, oh, I, I applaud the fact that you are being given a scepter. There's, of course, complete irony, but Ceausescu has this published in newspapers doesn't realize it's a joke. <laughs> no sense of irony, no sense of humor, none. I'm sort of slightly dazzled that you're saying we could sit down and have a laugh with Kim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're talk we've been talking about vulnerability from inside and the, you know, clamping down on, on laughter and mockery and the pushing of the image. But I'm interested in a little bit, obviously, that these countries, you know, well, possibly the exception of North Korea, aren't sort of isolated from the outside world. To what extent, you've talked about the sort of useful idiots of the foreign press who, you know, help. But in terms of, sort of foreign policy of adjacent countries, how can they help or hinder? How can they be played to a better dictatorship? Um, these dictators, the successful ones, tend to be very good, if they're in small countries, they tend to be very, very good in playing major powers against each other. Surely it's a gift of Kim Il-sung. All of, all of these dictators are very gifted people. They work very hard. Kim, Kim Il-sung, it's a tough job. Kim Il-sung uh, is basically installed, imposed on an unwilling population by the Soviet Union. Man has the help of China, the People's Republic, Mao, uh, to start this invasion of the South, uh, which, which ends up in a stalemate, millions of dead. But the point I'm trying to make is that it takes them a few years by roughly 1957-58, he's been able to very much eliminate the heavy hand of the Soviet Union and the presence, almost like an imperial occupation, of 400,000 soldiers from the People's Republic. It continues to play one against the other, exploiting this, the Soviet Sino rift. Same thing with Haiti. It wouldn't take more, probably, than about... 30, 40 well-trained soldiers to invade Haiti and organize a coup. It never happens. Why? Because Duvalier knows how to use the United States. Because the United States tried a similar coup against Fidel Castro and it was a massive cock-up. <laughs> Duvalier plays the anti-communism card. Whenever there is a lack of funds, whenever there is a threat, He's good in insulting the United States. He's also very good in obtaining their help. 
by playing the anti-communist. Yes, there's a sense that sometimes they're using a sort of nationalism. I mean, I think Ceausescu, you say, you know, he sort of uses the Prague Spring, Absolutely. doesn't he? As it were, both taking help from the Soviets and yes. saying, I'm standing up to the Soviets. The, the irony in the case of Ceausescu is that he pretends to be opposed to the Soviet Union. He pretends to be in favour of more independence. Yet he knows all too well that his population is docile because he has the backup of the Soviet Union. Ordinary people in Romania know all too well that if something happens, the Soviet Union will invade until the advent of Gorbachev. Now, that's the downfall for Ceausescu. Gorbachev tells him you should reform. Ceausescu says, no, I won't. Within a year, he's gone. Now, these are distinctively 20th century dictatorships. Mm. And obviously that begs questions, what would a 21st century dictatorship look like? For instance, you know, when you're using Mussolini right at the outset as a kind of paradigm, mm. one of the things that's really striking is that even though he hasn't actually got very many people on his side, at least to start with, he is able to exert complete control over the press. And, you know, that seems to go through an awful lot of this, is that they get hold of the press, they get hold of the radio station, they control printing and publication and censorship, yep. and they control the information space. That, at least now, presumably is no longer possible. I, I think so. It, it goes back to what I said earlier on about these two very uh, conflicting, uh, opposed forces. One force which tries to separate out powers, the other force that attempts to concentrate it. It's very clear that if you walk your way through the 20th century, those countries that try to separate out the powers, and those countries that attempt to uh, build up a civil society, have an independent judicial system, rule of law, checks and balances, are are obviously on the way up, the dictatorships are, are on the way down. We tend to forget that in 1973 it would have been unthinkable for a European to even consider democracy anywhere outside of northwestern Europe, with Salazar in Portugal, Franco in Spain, a bunch of generals in, in Greece. They fall in the middle of the 1970s. Then there is the fall, of course, the whole collapse of the Soviet Union. We tend to forget that there's been a very clear movement towards a democracy. You ask me, what does a 21st century dictatorship look like? Well, look at North Korea, look at the People's Republic of China, a couple of other countries. They're like old-fashioned, retrograde barbaric. Why hasn't the internet become the game changer we all hoped it would. I mean, there was the Arab Spring, there was this sort of great little green shoots of you can't control the information, you can't censor us, you can't find us. I mean, China's obviously your specialism. They've, yep. How good a job are they doing? Of oh, pretty good. Very, very good. But, you know, a technology, uh, whether it is radio, whether it's television, uh, dictators jump on it. Uh, Hitler could see what he could do with broadcasting. He wasn't very good. First time he appeared on radio, it didn't work out very well. But he thought, oh, I'm a good orator. I can work on my broadcasting skills, which is exactly what he did. They were produced below cost of production. There were loudspeaker pillars in cities, mobile loudspeakers taken to, to towns. Loudspeakers were everywhere. You could not avoid the voice of Hitler, or the voice of Mussolini in, in Italy. Uh, but it's not the radio that is intrinsically uh, in favour of an open, accountable uh, 
society or a closed one. It's what people do with it, what regimes do with it. Same with television and, of course, the same with the Internet. The Internet can be your friend. Uh, the Internet can be used by nasty regimes, as is the case, of course, and the ones I just mentioned um, earlier on. Why has China rode back in the way it has? It's a big question, but... It's a big question. I mean, is, is there a, a capsule answer to it that... Well, the tr as far as I'm concerned, China's never really truly changed all that much. People are surprised. But w which, which chairman, president, whatever the titles are, wh which one of them, since Mao, dead, Mao, Mao died, which one promised to change the political system? Which one said we will separate our powers? None of them. Deng Xiaoping spoke explicitly against it. Jiang Zemin spoke explicitly against it. Hu Jintao spoke explicitly against it. The last one in charge spoke explicitly against it. It has been very clear from the Cultural Revolution onwards that this regime, what not with tanks in Tiananmen Square, has been pretty determined to allow people to get away with very basic economic freedoms, but that this regime will relentlessly repress any political aspirations people have. Let's go around clubbing people. That's what they're doing in Hong Kong now, it's club people. And did you expect, expect what hap what's happening in Hong Kong now? Well, I think it illustrates very clearly that a retrograde regime uh, like that is incapable of dealing with a sophisticated city like Hong Kong. It simply doesn't know what to do with it, except club people. Now, obviously there's a lot of anxiety here about you know, the prorogation of Parliament, about things like this. And... I mean, quite recently, Richard Evans, the historian of the Third Reich, wrote a piece in Prospect saying, you know, we've, we've had our Reichstag fire and we're heading for Kristallnacht. Is that, is that hysterical, as far as you're concerned? Do you think yeah, so they're getting it out of proportion? That's one historian who obviously gets it completely wrong. And then there is in the United States uh, Christopher Browning, a wonderful man who, who wrote a book called Ordinary Man. And, and it's about uh, a team of Nazis who are there to literally carry out you know, the Holocaust. That's an extraordinary book, and he writes an editorial that says that we are now, in the United States under Trump, we are now in 1932. If we don't, if we are not careful, we will descend into the same sort of nightmare. What can you say? I mean, surely, one of the tasks of the historians is to show some respect for the people who lived in the past. If you're going to trivialize what happened in these atrocious regimes, if you're going to trivialize the deaths of, of tens of millions of people by claiming that today we have a Kristallnacht or today in the United States, uh, we are in the same situation as Germany in 1932. I, I think it's frankly deplorable. Lack of perspective. Of course, you can call everyone a dictator. The Pope is a dictator. Boris Johnson is a dictator. My boss is a dictator. My wife is a dictator. But it doesn't get you very far. I mean, surely what matters in a democracy is, is vigilance, but using inflated language doesn't contribute to vigilance. It just turns everything into a caricature. Yeah. Do you, 
do you have a more moderate version of anxiety about Western institutions? Me? Yeah. I mean, do you look at I mean, the separation of powers me, in the States? living in Hong Kong? Do I care about what happens here in a well-established, solid democratic country? No. Not, I do not lose any sleep over what happens here. What I, what I see is democracy in action. What I see in Hong Kong is a dictatorship in action. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, and if it were the case that the state could compel you to spend all of your savings on Frank's excellent book, How to Be a Dictator, I would, fight I, it. I would be in favour of that. But I hope that you will voluntarily contribute to Frank's GDP and to your own knowledge of the world by buying the excellent How to Be a Dictator. Two copies, one for your ambitious friend. Um, and... Frank will be signing after this, and there's your opportunity to battle and hold him with the unanswered question we didn't unfortunately have time for. I'd like to finish by thanking Frank DeCutter for a superb and a hugely enlightening evening, and to all of you for coming here and asking such intelligent questions. Thank you so much. Thank you.